0: Today is the final Sunday of the Easter season, and we've been in 1 Peter exploring the implications of the resurrection for our manner of living in the world. The resurrection of Jesus was a new birth for the people of God. Peter says that we have been born again, or begotten again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a new father, and a new family, and a new inheritance. And as children of the Father, we are expected to be obedient, to be holy like he is holy, to grow up to be like our Father. And remember, Peter is, is writing this letter to Christians who are experiencing some degree of persecution for their faith. They, they, they may not be facing death at this point, but they are facing a good deal of resistance from the people around them. Their commitment to follow Jesus was not a socially advantageous commitment. It came at a cost. In our society, until, until very recently, it was basically assumed that everyone was more or less Christian. It was really just a matter of how Christian and which denomination. But today, it's, it's increasingly the case that sincere and devoted followers of Jesus must necessarily go against the grain of culture. The commitment to follow Jesus is liable to draw criticism these days, perhaps even scorn. And so Christians in the West are having to unlearn some old habits. We're having to wake up to the reality that we don't enjoy the same social standing as previous generations. You see, there's, there's, a, there's a fine line between capitulating to the culture on one hand, and simply retreating or removing ourselves from the culture on the other hand. And we really don't have much practice walking that fine line. And so Peter's letter is highly relevant for us. How are we to conduct ourselves in a world that's skeptical of the church? A world that doesn't really understand what the church is all about? Or a world that's maybe even a little, a little bit hostile towards the church? How do we conduct ourselves? In our passage today, Peter exhorts us to persevere and to maintain a distinctly Christian posture in the world. But interestingly, Peter roots his exhortation in one of the strangest, most difficult to interpret passages in the New Testament. And so, and so Peter's message is very clear but Peter's logic is very unclear. But the the end result, Lord willing, I hope, is that each and every one of us will leave this place today with a greater and more steadfast hope. Verse 8. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, Bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Peter offers a list of corporate virtues, corporate virtues that ought to mark our life together unity, sympathy, love, tenderness, humility. Peter is describing the sort of Christian community that cultivates faithful and persevering Christians. When the church is unified and sympathetic and loving and tenderhearted and humble, we are well-equipped and well-prepared to maintain that distinctly Christian posture in the face of opposition, if only because we know we're not alone. When the church is unified and sympathetic and loving and tenderhearted and humble, we are well-equipped and and well-prepared to bless a world that's speaking evil against us. To bless a world that that reviles us. And then to drive this point home, Peter quotes from Psalm 34. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Pursue it. That's, That's an aggressive word. It's actually the word for persecute. In both Greek and Hebrew, that is the word for persecute. Seek peace and persecute it. Run after it. Hunt it down. Peace doesn't just happen. Peace is not a naturally occurring phenomenon. You have to want it and you have to work for it. When the world presses in on the church the world should find the church pressing in on peace. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so Peter quotes Psalm 34 to say, speak righteously, act righteously, turn away from evil, do good, seek peace, because God sees And God hears. His eyes are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. I know it's difficult. I know it's painful, he says. I know the world around you is hostile. But remember, the Lord looks upon you with favor. No matter what the world... Did I say the Lord or the world? The Lord looks upon you with favor. No matter what the world says your heavenly Father sees your goodness and he hears your prayer. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Or in other words, hallow Christ as king. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience. And so as we interact with the world around us, we are to be fearless. We are to be untroubled. We are to be prepared. We are to be hopeful and gentle and respectful and blameless. This is simply not, this is simply not how most people deal with conflict today. You can blame it on whatever you want, but we are a fearful and troubled and truly hopeless society. We are not gentle. We are not respectful. We are not blameless in our interactions with one another. We get even. We take vengeance. We hit back. We cancel the bigots. We own own the libs. Peter says, not us not the church. We will speak no evil. We will do no evil. We will bless when reviled. We will refuse to to demonize our opponents because we discern in them the image of God. We will pray for our enemies. We will love every person who is loved by God, which is every person. This is how Martin Luther King Jr. put it. He says, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will and we shall continue to love you. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. I, I think this this quote perfectly summarizes what Peter is talking about here. But how do we do that? From where do we derive the strength and and the confidence and the tenacity to endure suffering and then to go on loving? Look back at verse fifteen. We're told to honor Christ the Lord as holy, or translated literally, Paul says, sanctify Christ as Lord. To sanctify someone is to set them apart, to regard them as holy. In your hearts, set Christ apart. Regard him as holy, regard him as worthy, regard him as Lord and King, regard him as in charge of all of it. And what does that that do? How does that help us to endure suffering? Well, because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus did. We honor Christ the Lord because in the midst of trial and suffering, he is the ideal to which we aspire. Not only did he suffer for righteousness' sake, not not only was he faithful to the very end, but he also overcame. And I think that's the main point of verses 18 to 22. As I mentioned earlier, this is is a very confusing passage, but if if we keep the big picture in mind, it's really not hard to see the point that Peter is trying to make. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. In short, Jesus suffered. He is our example when it comes time to suffer. But that's not all. Verse 19. Jesus was made alive in the Spirit. And he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So, there are three primary interpretations for what Peter is talking about here, and I'm not going to get into them because I don't want the main point to get lost in the shuffle. The basic idea is that at some point, Jesus went and proclaimed his vindication and victory to what most scholars believe are fallen angels. Jesus announced his victory and declared his authority over the principalities and powers. And so these verses are are very much in keeping with Peter's theme here. To these suffering and persecuted Christians, Peter says, don't forget, Jesus suffered for the sake of righteousness too. You're in good company. But the death of Jesus was not the end. He was thereafter vindicated. And not only is he risen, He is also ascended and exalted. He has all authority over the very people you fear. Today is the Sunday after ascension. It's a time to remember the ascension of Jesus, a time to remember that he has been exalted to a place of supreme authority. And so I think it's especially fitting to reflect upon the practical importance of the ascension of Jesus. He is in charge. He is currently on the throne, and that means we have nothing to fear in this world. And you see, Peter's churches needed to know that they too, like Jesus, would one day be vindicated. That is the hope that sustains us through suffering. That is the hope for which we must always be prepared to give a reason. How are you Christians so persevering? How do you keep on loving in the midst of suffering? Because we have a hope that cannot die. Or rather, we have a hope that already died, yet lives. Our king is the living Lord. He has all authority. Nothing is done that he does not see. Nothing is said that he does not hear. And someday soon, he's going to vindicate us. And it's within this context, while making that point, that Peter makes a reference to baptism. Our baptisms, according to Peter, indicate that we will be numbered among the vindicated. In baptism, the victory of the risen and ascended Jesus is poured out upon us. As baptized Christians, we are marked out for victory and vindication. That's what it means. We are bathed in hope. Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can take away that baptism. You have been born again to a living hope. The favor of the Lord is upon you. His eyes are open to your goodness. His ears are open to your prayers. Even when you suffer, keep on loving because you have nothing to fear in this world. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, it is so good to know that we belong to your family. Jesus, it is is good to know that you are ascended, that you are in charge. And Holy Spirit, it is it is good to know that you are with us. Please give us that, the, the strength and the confidence and the tenacity we need. Give us the hope we need to persevere and to go on loving our neighbors even in the midst, even in the face of opposition. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.